On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. Well, howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here with our study through Ecclesiastes, Meaningless Life, Part 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 is where we find ourselves today. And today's title is God Says Shut Up. And I know it's probably weird for me to talk now that the whole point of the message is to shut up, but we'll walk through it. And I'll start with a story. Uh, some years ago, when I was a younger man, coming up here on October 11th, I'm turning 45 years of age. But many, many years ago, when I was uh, a young pastor, I had a, an amazing opportunity. Uh, there was a handful of us young pastors who were invited to get some time, hour, couple hours, with uh, one of the most respected, wise, godly, helpful Christian leaders alive on the earth. And so uh, a couple of us guys were standing out in the hallway, met for the first time. We were kind of all ushered in uh, and going to be able to sit down with this really great, wonderful leader. And uh, to be honest with you, I brought a notebook. I was looking forward to taking notes. Other guys seemed to have the same idea. And we sat down and the, the Christian leader, the pastor, uh, was kind. He asked us each, please, you know, take a moment, uh, introduce yourself. He knew who each of us were. He knew he was going to be meeting with us. He'd been praying for us. Um, just a guy who was really present, kind, attentive, loving, fatherly, gracious, awesome. And so I thought, well, we'll just do quick introductions and then we'll all just be quiet and let this guy talk for as long as he's willing to talk. And we'll take notes and learn a lot and maybe ask a few questions. And uh, as soon as it got to, uh, kind of tell us who you are time, uh, one of the young pastors in our small group completely hijacked the entire conversation um, and just started droning on and on and on and on and on and on about his ministry and all that they were doing and we're doing this and we're doing that and oh, this is so funny, and I got to tell you a story. Oh, and this one guy said this, and then this girl did that. And this just went on and on and on and on and on. And pretty soon the rest of us are, are looking at our watches like, man, the time is going away. And rather than sitting here listening to this world-class leader teach us something, we're listening to some guy who's in the same boat we are, young and has a lot to learn and isn't really learning it. And the problem is all of us guys in the room, we just met each other. And so we're all kind of looking at each other, rolling our eyes like, dude, when is Pastor Pontificate going to, you know, put a sock in it and call it a day? Well, this guy was good to go for a couple of hours, uh, but we didn't know how to bring this thing to an end. And the whole conversation got hijacked. Uh, and then one guy, thick neck, if I remember correctly, kind of a Southern accident, accent, uh, low pain tolerance pastor, he finally just had enough. He was like a tea kettle, just getting warmer and warmer. And all of a sudden he started to whistle and uh, he just looks over at this young pastor. And he's like, you just need to shut up just out of nowhere. And I don't know if you know much about pastor's meetings, but that's not really how you're supposed to conduct yourself. Um, it was a painfully awkward, awesome, glorious moment, if I could just be honest. Suddenly, uh, you know, the, the clueless clergy guy, it dawned on him that he had just taken what could have been a very sacred, helpful, massive deposit into his life and ours and just wasted it chatting away about nothing. And, uh, and it kind of dawned on him and it dawned on the rest of us, man, when you get an opportunity to get an audience with someone who really is wise and helpful and good. It's good to close your mouth and open your ears. And the truth is, oftentimes we have our mouth open and our ears closed. And the truth is, I've done that 
a, a multitude of times. I, I'm exceedingly guilty of this. Um, and it just happened to be that on that day, it was his turn. But I, I easily could have been as guilty. And, and I would ask you, have you done it? I mean, I think if we're honest, we've all done it. We go to meet with somebody or in the presence of somebody that we could learn a lot from or be helped or served by or get a deposit from. And rather than closing our mouth and opening our ears, we get it backwards. We open our mouth and we close our ears. We're talking when we should be listening. Here's the transition to Ecclesiastes 5. We tend to do this when we go to meet with God. It's the whole context of Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. How do you prepare to go meet with God? And, and what he's trying to course correct is he's saying, when you go to meet with God, go mainly for listening, not for speaking. Go with your mouth closed and your ears open. And when we go to meet with God, and when's the last time you met with God? Church, silence of solitude, personal devotional, prayer time. I don't know when the last time you met with the Lord was. But... Did you spend most of your time, or at least the first of your time, listening? Listening. Or was it speaking? And the truth is, we all do this, and we all do this with God. And this can be done in the low church fashion, where, you know, the Lord is my wingman, my plus one, my tonto, because, you know, the Lord is my co-pilot. And, you know, we all know who's in charge. And so the Lord Jesus sits over there, and I just chat away and he just is so honored to listen to me and uh, have me just, you know, pontificate about my life and let him know all the things that are going on and just sort of download on him in a very informal sort of buddy Christ kind of way. This also can be done in the high church fashion where it's as if some people think that the Lord is really impressed by the word count of our liturgical prayer time and if we drop in words like beseech, thee, thou, and anything else that sounds Shakespearean and old London that God's in heaven going, did you hear that? That was really interesting, impressive. That kid obviously uh, got good grades in, in literature. Think of it from God's perspective. Think of it from the perspective of you're the one who can help. You're the one who can give counsel and insight and direction. Think of it that you're the one who could say something that could really unlock the next season of someone's life, and they're not even listening. They just keep talking, as if they want to impress you rather than to invite you. Some of you are parents, you felt this way with your kids. Some of you are employers, you felt this way with your employees. Some of you are ministry leaders, and you felt this way with your people. Some of you are counselors, you felt this way with your counselees, some of you are teachers, you felt this way with your students. It's just like, man, you just need to stop talking. You need to start listening. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're talking about. And if you don't listen, that'll never change. What's it like for you to meet with God? When is the last time you met with God? When's the last time you gathered with God's people for corporate worship? What was the last time that you had silence and solitude or devotional time with the Lord? What was the attitude in your heart and mind? Did you come prepared to meet with God or just roll in and roll out and be entertained as if the whole point of a worship service is the same as a concert or a movie that a good performance would be put on, that you really are the audience, not the Lord, and that uh, people are there to serve you, and you're there to respond by singing or speaking or critiquing or pontificating. And that's really the heart of Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. And what Solomon asks us to do is to check our own heart motives before we meet with God. And 3,000 years ago, this was a problem. Apparently, people are just coming in to meet with God as if, you know, they're coming in to just sort of download their problems and, and walk away without listening. But today, we could argue that things have only gotten worse, where in some regards, Christianity is like a business, and uh, the customers in the church are there to be served by the staff, and the church is there to provide religious goods and services. And uh, what always happens is that the customer is always right, so we, we then 
determine what do they want, and then we give them what they want. And what that is, is that's not a God-centered view of life and ministry, where the center of the church and the people of God is, is God's presence and God's preferences. And when we come, we come to meet with God. We come to serve um, the Lord who has served us. We come to listen to the Lord who is speaking to us. We don't come just to be entertained by professionals who are providing experiences, goods, and services as if we were the center and they were the worshipers. No, we are the worshipers and God is the center. Do you get the difference? And and I get this because I, I grew up uh, as a marginal Jack church-going kid, didn't know Jesus, but would have said perhaps I was a Christian. And like many, I would have said, well, I can live like hell 167 hours a week. And then uh, every Sunday I'll give God his one hour and we'll call it even. And I'll roll in, I'll re roll out. When I'm rolling in, I'm not really thinking about my heart condition or what I'm there to learn or listen for. Um, if I feel like there's a few things I want God to take care of, I'll let him know. And then, uh, you know, check my phone is what I would have done if I uh, could have afforded one as a poor kid. But, you know, I would have been the kind of kid sitting there playing video games and checking the score and then uh, roll out. And just thinking, hey, man, you know, going to church, that's just like going to the car wash. You sort of pull in, get cleaned up, pull out, go where you want, do what you want. The car wash is there for when you get dirty. Otherwise, it doesn't really have any purpose for me. Is that you? What's your heart attitude going in to meet with God? Are you looking to be a good listener? Here's what he says, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. This is the whole context. When you go to meet with God, listen. Ecclesiastes 5.1 says it this way. Um, As you enter the house of God, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. That's this particular translation. As you enter the house of God, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. Sip of coffee. He's talking about worshiping and worshipers going into the house of God, into the presence of God to meet with God. And the truth is everyone everywhere is always worshiping who you live for, who inspires you, whose approval you live for, uh, what do you live for, what motivates you, what defines you. Uh, if you start asking questions like, uh, what are you most afraid of and what are you most hopeful for, then you start to unpack and uncover, really, who or what am I living for? Who or what is the object of my worship? If worship is pouring, pouring out my time, my talent, my treasure, giving myself to someone or something else, and they're in that position of glory, and I make sacrifices for them or for it. Can be an experience, can be a hobby, can be a relationship, can be a grade point average, can be an income level, can be a vocational achievement, whatever the case may be. Then we start to find the object of our worship. And this means that then, biblically, worship is not limited to a time, a place, or a style of music. And this is why we see false worship in the Old Testament, like Worship of the false god Molech required sacrificing your children, which is kind of like abortion today. And in the New Testament city of Corinth, that a spirituality that included venturing to their pagan temple to sleep with one of the many prostitutes, which is not unlike the entire adult industry and websites and clubs and such in our own day. For the God of the Bible, he tends to see everything as a worship issue. Who, what are you living for? And so the God of the Bible cares a lot about worship and we were created for the purpose of worshiping God, which means we're all worshipers. The only difference is who we worship or what we worship or how we worship or where we worship or why we worship. But the question is not if we worship. And because God is our creator, he rightly deserves to be the sole object of our worship. Everything else is a created thing and a created thing is not worthy of worship and glory. Only the creator is worthy of glory and worship. And so here's the big idea. We were made, you were made by God. We were made, you were made for God. And worship is to be done to the right God in the right way with the right heart. So in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the worship of God centered primarily around the temple. And so when Solomon here is saying, as you enter the house of God, he would have been referencing the temple. They did meet also in synagogues scattered in various areas, wherever there was enough adult male Jews to assemble, and the women and children would join them. 
But the temple that he is referring to is actually the second temple. And it was constructed by Solomon, who is also the author of Ecclesiastes and also the king of Israel. We know from the Bible that God was the architect and he designed the temple and gave them instructions for how to build it. And it took 153,000 workers seven years to build the temple. Let me, let me tell you something about the temple since Solomon brings it up. And when you hear temple in the Bible, your mind should immediately, it's like clicking on a link, go to worship because the purpose of the temple was worship. We'll get there in a moment, but let me tell you about the temple. The temple was not needed by God, but rather it was needed by God's people. God doesn't need a home. God created the heavens and the earth. God is far bigger and grander than anything we could build for him to live in. God's not a homeless guy that needs, you know, simple people like you and I to go out and construct him a place to dwell. The temple was not needed by God. It was needed by God's people. God doesn't need a place to dwell. God is not solely contained in any particular place. He rules sovereignly over every place. But God's people needed a temple, a place to come and meet with God. And so the God who created the heavens and the earth does not need a home built by us, but we need a home in which to meet with him. And so as a loving father, he gave instructions for the temple to be built so that his kids would have a place to come and meet with him because that's what we needed. And there were five primary purposes for the temple at least. Uh, there may be more. Place, presence, people, priest, and propitiation. Yes, kids, P is our letter of the week. Place, the temple was the place of connection between God's home in heaven and our home on earth. And so it was a place for people who were on the earth to come and meet with a God who was in heaven because he would meet with them in that place. Number two, presence. The temple was the place where God's presence dwelt on the earth with the Holy of Holies being its center. Okay, so in one regard, God rules sovereignly over all of his creation, but he chose a place where his presence would dwell on the earth so that his people could draw near to his presence. That brings us to the third point, people. The temple was the place where God's people would gather together. And so the high holy days and the feasts and the celebrations, God's people would come together like a family in God's presence, in the place of the temple. Number four was the priest. And the priest oversaw the ministry of the temple, and it was the high priest who was the mediator and the intercessor between God and his people. And then number five, propitiation. In the place of sinful people, the priests would offer a sacrifice for their sins. So when you think of the temple, if we work from what I've just articulated, it was a place of God's presence where the people would gather under the leadership of the priest and have their sin atoned for through propitiation. And all of that was worship. It includes tithes and offerings and sacrifices and ritual cleansing and bathing. It includes singing and praying and repenting and fellowshipping and caring for the poor. There was a lot that happened, but it was all around this big idea of worship. And so as people would make their pilgrimage or their, or, or their, uh, their journey uh, to, uh, to the temple to meet with God, the question is, what are you thinking about? How are you preparing? It's not identical, but it is akin to what are you doing when you get up and get in the car and go to church? What are you thinking about? How are you preparing? What is your first responsibility? What is your hope and your goal? Oftentimes people don't even think about it. They just sort of roll in, roll out, and treat it like any other just sort of meeting, task, duty, responsibility. Solomon's admonition is that the first responsibility of a worshiper coming to meet with God is to quote unquote, shut up and to quote, keep their ears open. Strong language. The God of the Bible is not mean. He's not angry. He's not cruel. When he uses language like this, it's probably because it's really important. And he says it in such a way that we just can't ignore it. It may even be that he's at the point where this is so prevalent that nobody's listening, that God just can't say, hey, I need you to listen because they're not listening. So he needs to say it in a way that he makes sure that they start listening. The language is strong because the issue is important. And I want to say this about God. Sometimes God in the Bible will use strong language, but he doesn't do it all the time. So we shouldn't do it all the time. 
Practically, this means that when we sit in silence to see if the Holy Spirit might be speaking a word to us, we are worshiping. And this is really important. I, I'm, a, I'm a guy, I can't sing worth a lick. Uh, last thing you want me to do is even pretend that I'm going to lead us now in worship singing. Um, but I like to sing, and I like to sing in a crowd where other people with good voices drown out my voice. But sometimes what happens is when we get together uh, to sing to the Lord, which I'm 100% for, and I'm a singer, prayer, I'm a hand raiser, I'm a clapper, I, I got enough charismatic in me, I'm for all of it. But sometimes um, we can think that worshiping the Lord is almost solely reduced to singing songs to the Lord. And what he's saying here is, no, you're not just worshiping the Lord when you're singing or praying. You're worshiping the Lord when you're sitting and listening and considering and pondering and learning and meditating and reflecting and processing and considering. So when we sit in silence to listen to God's word read and preached, we are worshiping God just as much as when we get up to sing. So I'd say, let's say you're a leader in a church ministry or you're a person who leads a band on Sunday. Don't get up and say, all right, now let's worship the Lord. No, if people have been sitting there listening to God's word read or listening to God's word preached or just sitting there to meet with the Lord and to listen to him in prayer, they've already been worshiping. It's not like their worship starts when their singing starts. Their worship starts when their listening starts, and it can then roll into their singing. And here's the big idea, because worship is responding to God, we need to listen before we speak. We need to listen before we sing. We need to listen before we pray. Listening is the first responsibility. And then that informs and directs what we pray for, how we sing, what we do. And so learning to begin our time with God by listening helps us to avoid two common errors in worship. <clears throat> Number one, some people come to meet with God as if they were going to impress him. Okay? And this may mean that they get all dressed up, so when they go to meet with God, they look really good. And I'm not saying you shouldn't get dressed nice to go to church. I don't really care either way. Some people say, oh, well, if you're going to go meet with the president, wouldn't you get dressed up? Yeah, but not if he was my dad. Okay, And God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and our Father. So I don't think it's necessarily disrespectful for a kid to dress informally when they're going to meet with their dad. But some people out of conscience, out of reverence, out of respect, out of tradition, they get dressed up. I don't really care either way. But some people, <clears throat> when they go to meet with God, it's as if they were going to impress him. I'm going to get all dressed up so that I look presentable and that the Lord will be impressed with me and ultimately that other people will be impressed with me as well. And <clears throat> when you come to meet with God for the purpose of impressing him, the result is such people talk on and on and on and on and on about all that is going on in their life, all that they've accomplished, all that they're working on, all the people they're helping, all the goals they are pursuing. It's like, now is time for me to share my resume, maybe even in prayer. Lord, thank you that I got this. Thank you that I did that. Thank you for the. But really what it is, it's, it, it, sometimes it's not even an attitude of gratitude. It really is a, a, a boasting in a religious way. Are you guilty of it? I know I've been. Let me just put the pin in the balloon. God is not impressed with us. God is not impressed. There's nobody that God's impressed with. There's nobody that God looks at and says, boy, never seen that. I'm not capable of that. Number two, we do not tell God anything that he doesn't already know. Now, some of you, this, this will hurt. Let, let, me, let me give you some good news. God does not need you. God is not impressed by you. And God doesn't learn anything from you. But he just loves you. So you don't need to impress him. You just need to draw near to him and enjoy his presence. But when we begin our time with God by listening, it does help us avoid the two common errors in worship. One is coming to impress God. Two 
Some people will come to meet with God as if they were meeting with an employee who needed a long list of orders from their boss. How many of you have an employer? And pretty much when you go to meet with them, okay, I need you to do this, I need you to do this, I need you to do this, I need this, here's your punch list, your to-do list, your tasks, go for it. One of my first jobs paying my way through college was as a concierge and a bellhop at a hotel. And basically all day, I was in complete reactive response mode. Um, I would wait for people to come and tell me what they needed me to do. I need you to park my car. I need you to take me to the airport. I need you to haul my bags. I need you to get me a town car. I need you to book me a tour. I need you to go pick up my dry clean. Okay, whatever. My job was to sit there and to do whatever people asked me to do. That's not God's job. Right? God's not like a college kid sitting there with the vest on waiting for you to tell him what to do. And when we come to meet with God and we don't begin by listening and we start by speaking, we can easily misunderstand the purpose of prayer as if the purpose of prayer was to meet with God who is our you know, subordinate and we hand him a punch list of items to get done because that's what we need him to do. Sorry, my dog's freaking out. God loves us and God serves us, but God does not take orders from us or follow us. Do you get that? And so when you come in to meet with God, you don't start with, okay, God, here's all the things I need you to do. Get a pen, write this down. Make sure Jesus is paying attention. Instead, it's like, okay, God, before I tell you what I think I need, I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to see what you have to say to me, what you want to teach me. I want you to Check my heart and my motives, and God, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm, I'm here to listen to you and to learn from you and to be present with you and to enjoy your presence. And Lord, at some point after I've listened to you and I've heard from you, there may be some things that I want to share with you, but I'm certainly not going to start by telling you what to do. And prayer is not a time to tell God what to do. Just like... Uh, a parent loves the kid, and the kid, if they've been respectful, can ask things of the parent. Um, God is a father, and a relationship of worship and prayer and presence with him is like that. But any child who starts bossing their mom or dad around, well, you need to do this, and you need to do that, and you never do this, and you never do that, and you, I thought you were already going to do this, and why are you taking so long? If you've ever seen kind of a bratty kid bossing their parents around, just think to yourself, boy. Prayer can get like that pretty easy, and I can be a bratty kid. That being said, uh, he moves on in Ecclesiastes uh, 5, uh, 1, in the second half of the verse through verse 4. He says, it is evil to make mindless offerings to God. Don't make rash promises and don't be hasty in bringing matters before God. After all, God is in heaven and you're on the earth. Oh. See how, how that works. He's, he's definitely above us. There's an authority issue there. So he says, so let your words be few. Too much activity gives you restless dreams. Too many words makes you a fool. According to the great psychologist Maslow, our highest need is self-actualization, which leads to self-love, self-help, and self-esteem as we pursue self-actualization. In such thinking, nothing is above the self, and if there is a god or gods or a goddess, then he, she, they, or it exists to, in effect, worship the human self, uh, empowering us, enabling us to be all we can be and do all we can do. In essence, God exists to glorify us. There's another way to say it. We don't believe that, but apart from strong biblical teaching, that's where we go because the idol that we tend to choose is the person we see in the mirror every day and think that they are the center of the universe and everyone and everything should revolve around us and meet our needs and wants and whims. Conversely, according to the Bible, our highest need is not self-actualization, but rather God's glorification. What this leads to is God love, God help, God esteem. God love is better than self-love. God help is better than self-help and God esteem is better than self-esteem. So having God established as the center of our life in worship 
it displaces and replaces us, which is a really good thing because anybody who is the object of worship and center of their life invariably is miserable and makes other people miserable. If God is at the center and God is the object of worship, when we come into God's presence to meet with God, it makes sense that we would not begin by speaking, that we would instead begin by listening. That God is in the position of authority. He sits in heaven, Solomon says. We're down here on the earth. And, and in so doing here, Solomon is establishing a biblical pattern of worship. He then goes on to speak about thoughtless worship of a quote-unquote mindless fool. Um, you can be a person who knows God. You can be a person who belongs to God. You can be a person who comes to me with God and still be a mindless fool. Scary for us all, myself included. A mindless fool is one who comes to worship God, but doesn't really understand the God that they've come to worship. Um, right, a, a mindful, wise person, conversely, knows who God is, and when they come to meet with God, they use their mind. They, they think before they come to meet with God. They listen before they come to speak to God. They, they learn before they before they rush out and act. And so here's what I want you to know. God is a father, and maybe you got a deep father wound. Maybe you had no dad. Maybe you had a bad dad. Maybe you're bitter against your dad. Maybe you've not forgiven your dad. Um, the most important thing about you is your view of God. That's the most significant thing about you is your view of God. And don't let your earthly father taint the perspective of your heavenly father He's even willing to be, according to the psalmist, a father to the fatherless. But when we're coming to meet with God, we're coming to meet with an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, all-ruling, all-reigning Father. Okay? And I need you to know that God the Father is good. And so when you come to meet with Him, you need to assume that He wants to bless you and speak to you. Okay? And this begins all the way with our first parents. I was reading in Genesis 1.28. It says this to, about our first parents, Adam and Eve. God blessed them and said, very early on, what's the first thing God does? He blesses and then he speaks. He blesses and then he speaks. I need you to know that that's the father heart of God. He likes to bless his kids and he likes to speak to them. Just like any good parent wants their kids to be blessed and wants their kids to learn and listen. Furthermore, because God our Father is sovereign, he cannot be controlled, manipulated, or forced in any way because he is free. So mindless fools who come to worship, they don't understand who God is. They don't understand that God is good, God wants to bless, and God wants to speak. They don't know who God is, and so they come in and they think, how can I get God to bless me? How can I get God to... Um, love me? How can I get God to serve me? How can I get God to help me? And the point is, you don't have to get God to be good. God is good. Now, that mindset of worship of a mindless fool, that's really the perspective of what I'll call paganism. And in paganism, people are the center um, that we live for ourselves and God comes to submit to our demands, but God is not a loving, good, sovereign father. And so instead, he can be manipulated into doing what the worshiper wants. So according to pagan thinking or the worship of mindless fools, to quote Solomon, he's not good and he's not going to speak to me and he's not going to bless me. So I need to find a way to manipulate him and to make him be good to me and speak to me and bless me. This is where you get rituals, spells, incantations. This is where you get uh, sort of sacred objects, and I put that very loosely in quotes. There's nothing sacred about them. Uh, but these are things and ways that people think that they can manipulate the spirit realm to obey them and to give them what they want. And they're thinking, well, it, I'm in the physical world and there is the spiritual world, and the spiritual world is not necessarily good, but there are ways that I can get the spiritual world to bless me in the physical world and to do what I want. 
And the truth is, that's just a horrible wrong view of God. But sometimes even God's people worship in ways that are pagan. And so what Solomon is talking about here is rash promises and vows that people utter to manipulate God to get him to do something that they don't think he'll do otherwise. So they're trying to cut a deal with God. And these things usually are uttered when someone is under pressure and wanting God to come through in a pinch. One example, I'll give you one. Uh, someone wants God to do something. So they, sw I swear to God, you know, that if you do this, I'll do that. Or I swear on a stack of Bibles or God, I promise that if you do this, I'll do that. God, if you get me out of this bind, I'll never do that again. God, if you would just come to God, I'll make a deal. God, let's cut a deal. I'll, I'll tithe 20% if my girlfriend's not pregnant. I'll tithe 40% if my wife doesn't know about my affair. I'll tithe 60% if my wayward kid, you know, breaks up with their crazy maker, live-in boyfriend and comes home. God, I promise, you know, I'll never do that again. I'll never say that again. I'll never go there again if you just... Help me get out of this mess that I've gotten myself into. God, I know we shouldn't have been living and sleeping together, but oh boy, I'm afraid that, you know, she's pregnant. Please help her not be pregnant. And we're going to go back to church and we're going to tithe and, and we're going to not live and sleep together anymore. And we're going to read Leviticus seven times and we're going to serve in the children's ministry and we're going to go on a mission trip to Africa. Please just make the pregnancy test be negative. It's that kind of crisis that causes people to try and manipulate God. So when they go into God's presence to meet with God, it's not to listen to God, it's to talk to God. It's not to invite God to be sovereign in their life. It's to be sovereign over God and to try and strike a deal through a vow or an oath to get God to do what I want him to do and to get me out of the thing that I got myself into. But what happens, true or false, once the crisis passes, you forget all about the vow and the promise because you didn't really mean it in the first place. That's what he calls Foolish and mindless worship. If you hear the dog barking and my daughter laughing, I think it's because they're all jumping in and out of the pool, my kids and my dog. They really love the pool here in Phoenix. Ecclesiastes 5.4. Here's what he says then. Here's the, the right way to worship. When you make a promise to God, don't delay in following through, for your God takes no pleasure in fools. Keep all the promises you make to him. It is better to say nothing than to make a promise and to not keep it. Don't let your mouth make you sin. I've done that. And don't defend yourself. I've done that. By telling the temple messenger that the promise you made was a mistake. That would make God angry and he might wipe out everything you have achieved. So he is still in the theme of uh, worship. And what he's talking about is meeting with God. And what he's saying is don't come and meet with God. And then just because you're in a pinch, make a promise, make a vow, make a pledge and then don't follow through on it. Um, so that makes God angry. So what I want to talk about is, since he's talking here about vows, um, I want to talk very, 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 very practically about two kinds of vows, inner vows and outer vows. And what he's saying here is be very careful. You just don't run around making vows. And don't make any vow you don't intend to fulfill. A vow exists in two forms, like I just said, inner vows and outer vows. Inner vows are pledges and promises we make internally to guide our future life decisions. Okay? This can be a vow that we make to ourselves or a vow that we make to the Lord, but it's an, it's an inner vow where we internally pledge um, in some regard to guide our future life decision-making. Jesus refers to this in Matthew 5. And in the context, Matthew 5, 33 through 37, Jesus warns about vows saying, I say, do not make any vows. That's what Jesus says. Often an inner vow is made from pain. And it's intended to keep us from ever being hurt again. That's the point of an inner vow. I got hurt. I'm wounded. In my pain, I will make a vow. And that vow will keep me from experiencing this pain ever again. Okay? Examples include the single person who has had their heart broken by an unfaithful romantic relationship that vows they will never give their heart to anyone again. 
They broke my heart. That's it. I'm never giving my heart to anyone again or the wounded church member who says, I'll never attend church again. I'll never trust a ministry leader again. An employer who has an employee that burned them and stole from them. No one will ever rip me off again. Here's the point, and I want to be sympathetic and pastoral, but I also want to be helpful and truthful. When we're hurting and in pain, we can make rash decisions and make vows that seem to protect us in the short term, but only harm us in the long term. I'll say that again. When we are hurting and in pain, we can make rash decisions and make vows that seem to protect us in the short term, but only harm us in the long term. Here's the problem with an inner vow. It takes an area of your life and it removes the Lordship of Jesus over it. He's no longer in charge. Rather than allowing him to speak into and rule over that area of your life, you make matters worse, you take matters into your own hands, which is sinful, foolish, and dangerous. As a pastor, I've seen inner vows completely dominate the decision-making of people's entire lives. I've seen vows that people have made, inner vows that they've made when they were children in response to a painful experience continue to control their lives decades later. I had one recently where there was a gal, her dad was a bad, 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 bad guy, left, and she made an inner vow, I'll never trust another man again. Well, now she's got some real marriage problems many years later because she's still keeping that inner vow and she can't open her heart to her husband. And he keeps asking, what can I do? What can I do? Nothing as long as that vow is in place because she's being true to that vow and Jesus isn't Lord of that area of her life. And the result is that there is now a demonic stronghold that could become a stranglehold. Jesus would tell her, your husband really loves you. You need to open your heart to him and trust him. But the inner vow says, I made a vow when I was a little girl that I would never trust any man again. And as a pastor, you can look at that and say, okay, I'm very sympathetic and empathetic and I'm sorry for the pain you've went through. But all an inner vow does is it continues to inflict more pain. It doesn't bring any healing. And, and I need you to hear that. And I need you to know that. And I want you to ask yourself, have I made any inner vows that are governing the decision-making of my life and removed the Lordship of Jesus? And when confronted with this, sometimes people who've made an inner vow, they'll talk in terms of being true to themselves, but in practice, it makes it nearly impossible to be true to yourself and to be true to God. And so for these very loving, very kind, very practical reasons, Solomon and Jesus both warn us, do not make such inner vows. And if we've made them, we need to repent of them and sin and break the stronghold they have over our life. Again, not all vows are bad. But we're talking about here are vows out of hurt and pain to protect us in the future because we don't trust that God will and to make the decisions for us because we're not willing to have God speak into that part of our future, which again, in the context of Ecclesiastes 5, is exactly what we're talking about. Not letting vows govern your life, but let the Lord govern your life and don't make the decision for every day for the rest of your life based upon a painful inner vow that you've made. Go meet with the Lord and then seek his counsel and let him speak into that part of your life and help make the decisions for your future. So that's the first kind of vow is the inner vow. There's a lot of power there. I just wonder if that's not something that we all need to spend some time thinking about. In addition to inner vows, there are outer vows, and outer vows are pledges and promises we make to God with another person or person. So this is more like a, <clears throat> a covenantal community to some regard. Perhaps the most common example that comes to mind is what? Where you know, two people come together in the presence of God to make pledges and vows. Sound familiar? We call that a wedding ceremony. In marriage, a couple stands together in the presence of God to make vows to God and one another in the presence of witnesses. That's an outer vow. That's not just a vow that you make internally. You make it externally to another person and to the Lord and the witnesses. <clears throat> and what can happen is, again, when we're distressed and 
under duress. We just start throwing, I promise I, I'll do this, I'll do that. I promise I'll do this. I'll, you give me a hundred bucks and I'll work it off. You, you know, take me back home and I'll never drink again. We just start throwing out all kinds of vows and pledges. And the hope is to get us out of a painful situation. But even in marriage, sadly, many times, these vows are not taken seriously by the bride or the groom. I mean, I, I, one of the early weddings that I did, I always have the couple write out your vows and what do you want to say to her and what do you want to say to him and kind of pledge and let us all eavesdrop and, you know, what's your, what's your vows? What's your pledge? What's your commitment? And very quickly, a couple weeks after a wedding, holy smokes, it just went from bad to worse with this couple and they were just not getting along. Not, I mean, they were nasty to each other. I remember sitting them both down and, um, I happened to have at that time still a copy of their vows because the wedding was just very recent. I still had a copy in the back of my Bible. And uh, man alive. I pulled out and I, I handed her her vows and I said, well, read these. This is what you said you were going to do. And I said to him, okay, here's your vows. Read these and this is what you said you were going to do. And they both kind of chuckled at me and said, uh, well, we didn't, we don't take these seriously. These are more like you know, hopes and dreams and, and wishes that we have. These aren't things that we were, you know, committing to. Yeah, yeah, you were. And that's how God sees it. That's why God gets angry. He's like, you, you stood up there and you pledged to my son and you pledged to my daughter that you were going to do some things and not do some other things. And if you just said those things, thinking that everybody present would kind of have a little Hallmark greeting card moment that really touched them deep in their heart but had no intention of following through, God's like, I'm not okay with that. Promises to love, forgive, honor, serve, along with pledges to fidelity, sadly sometimes don't even stick through the honeymoon. Uh, the tragic result is broken hearts and broken families that could have been prevented if the husband and the wife meant the vows they made and kept them. Um, man, think about it. Who's broken their vow, their pledge to you? It's painful, isn't it? Man, I thought I could trust you. I thought I thought I thought I could depend on you. God feels like that every day. And we all do it. What he's saying is, uh, be careful with your inner vows. They could ruin your life. And be careful with your outer vows. It could ruin your life and other people's lives too. So then he sort of summarizes this whole section about worship and the presence of God, coming to listen, not to speak, not being rash, not being foolish, not being hasty, not telling what God what to do, not trying to manipulate God with a vow or a pledge. He says this in Ecclesiastes 5.7. Talk is cheap, but that's true. That's true, right? The old adage, when all is said and done, a lot more is said than done. Talk is cheap, he says, like daydreams and other useless activities, fear God instead. So here's where he drops anchor, fear God. Say, well, how do I, how do I get my heart right to meet with God? How do I know the right way to come into the presence of God? How do I increase my willingness to listen to God and to hear from God and to be instructed and corrected by God. It starts with the fear of God. And the Bible speaks a lot about the fear of God. It's one of the big mega themes of the Bible. And Solomon picks up this theme, driving us to live our life um, out of the fear of the Lord. Like Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Older theologians used to call this living life quorum Deo. That means in the face of God. Saying, you know what? God sees and knows all, including my heart. And one day I'll stand before God and I'll give an account. And I won't be giving an account to a mirror or to someone who isn't all-knowing. I'll be giving account to God who sees and knows all. Because we come from God, we belong to God, and one day we will stand before God. And so... Life is to be lived, quorum Deo, in the face of God, out of the fear of God. Now, for the non-Christian, fearing God means considering your eternal fate, that one day you're going to die and you're going to stand before Jesus Christ, holy and righteous, all-seeing, all-knowing, 
that he either died on the cross in your place for your sins, or he will sentence you to the conscious eternal torments of hell, where you will be punished as a sinner who rejected the salvation grace of God and have no one to blame but yourself. And the smoke of your torment, the Bible says, rises forever and ever, and you will experience what the Bible calls the gnashing of teeth. You will be grinding your teeth eternally as you suffer the just punishment for your cosmic rebellion against a good God who is willing to die for you. But if you're unwilling to respond to him, then he is perfectly within his just rights to have the full force of his eternal wrath resting on you. You feel that? For the unbeliever, for the non-Christian, this kind of fear should be sobering, give us a sense of urgency, and tell us, how do I get out of the path of the wrath of God? And the answer is Jesus Christ. God became a man, lived without sin, died for our sin, absorbed, endured the wrath of God, paid the price for our sin, and through faith in him and grace from him, we are taken out of the place of God's wrath and we're put into the place of God's love and we're out of the place of God's condemnation and we're into the realm of God's salvation and we go from being God's enemy to being God's family. That's good news. The fear of God for the Christian is different than living in terror that hell is awaiting. For the Christian, fearing God means living a God-centered life that honors, respects, and considers God in all things. This kind of fear is not terror, but more the kind of response a child should have to a godly father who loves them. They, they want to honor, they want to respect, they want to consider, they want to obey, they want to learn, because their dad is wonderful, and he loves them, and his will is good for them. Okay? That's what it means to, to fear God, to hold God in high regard, uh, to come to God uh, with great um, consideration and respect and reverence. And this kind of thinking, quite frankly, it's completely countercultural in an age when men no longer stand because a woman has entered the room and having authority issues is no longer an issue. We live in a day when rebellion against God and godly authority, it's not just tolerated, it's celebrated. Uh, this includes the cultural expectation that children would disobey and defy the parents that God gave them. Even the, I got five kids, even the popular cultural entertainment for preteens and teens usually commonly, normally portrays parents as stupid, aloof, unhelpful. Therefore, the wise, all-knowing, insightful, you know, preteen or teen must rebel against or ignore their parental authority. In a lot of kids' movies, mom dad, dumb, aloof, not helpful, not to be listened to. Uh, the, the kids know best and the family pet is way smarter than the parents of so the dog or cat or bear or hamster or panda or whoever or whatever is in the movie or show is the hero of the story and saves the family with the, with the help of the children. And oftentimes the parents don't even know because they're that stupid. And it sort of gives this portrait that people in authority are dumb and we're better to take care of ourselves without including them or listening to them. And that extends all the way up to God. So for us to fear God, to worship God, means when we come to meet with God and worship, we're inviting God as Father King to rule and reign in our lives. And this causes us to focus on our King, the Lord Jesus, and begin by listening to him so that we might become more like him. Not coming to boss him around, not coming to impress him, uh, not coming uh, to just uh, sort of ignore or endure him, but to enjoy him and to listen to him and to invite him uh, to instruct us and inform us and correct us. And practically, this means that worship is the first fruits of our week. It's the first and the best. And meeting with God first sets the precedent and the pattern for the course of the rest of the week as we now go to be present with God at work and worship him there. We go to be present with God at the home and worship him there. We we go out into the community and God is present with us and we go to worship him there by, by loving, by serving, by helping, by giving, by bringing the goodness of God's grace evidenced in our lives and how we speak of and treat others. 
And so worship is not just something that we squeeze into our life. It, it's the first fruits of our entire life. And the rest of life flows out of meeting with God and listening to God and hearing from God and then walking out in obedience to God. Well, they used to do that in the temple, and you probably know this, maybe you don't. Uh, the temple that Solomon mentions here in Ecclesiastes 5 is the place of their worship. It no longer exists as a place where we must go to worship God. Um, I've been there. I've seen it myself. It's a bunch of rubble. When the Lord Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom, from God to us, and it recognized and, and revealed that God's presence was released from one place so that we might meet with him in any place. By 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, just like Jesus said it would be. And I've been there, and I can tell you, there's no temple, it's all rubble. So as Christians, we do not go to the temple to meet with God physically. Instead, we go to Jesus to meet with God spiritually through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, wherever we may be. And in that regard, it is more that uh, we don't go to meet with God, that God has come to meet with us, that we don't have to go to one place, that God is willing to come meet with us in any and every place. That's why you can be driving in your car and experience the presence of God. You could be at home and experience the presence of God. You could be for a walk in God's grand and glorious creation and experience the presence of God. And the whole point of the temple was that it was a foreshadowing of the forthcoming of Jesus. The whole point of the Bible is to drive us to the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he is the image of the invisible God. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so Jesus is like a mirror that reflects God the Father to us. And so when we think of the temple, uh, I told you it was number one about place. Well, Jesus is God become a man and the connecting point between heaven and earth. I told you the temple was about presence and Jesus is the presence of God on the earth. And that continues through the ministry of the Holy Spirit today. I told you number three, that the temple was about people and Jesus is where the people of God now go to meet together spiritually in worship. I told you that the point of the temple number four was the priest and Jesus is our high priest and the mediator between God and man is the God man. And number five, I told you the temple was about propitiation, uh, substitution for sinners, and Jesus is the one who laid down his life to atone for our sin. So some of you say, okay, so, so if I want to worship God, do I go to the temple? No, the temple was to just get us ready for Jesus, and once Jesus came, we don't need the temple anymore. He is the place we meet with God. He is the presence of God. He is where the people of God gather. He is the high priest between us and God, and he is the propitiation for our sin. And because of Jesus, our bodies are now the temple where God the Holy Spirit dwells. That's what the Bible teaches. And so now your body is like a little temple. It's where God dwells, and he goes with you wherever you go through the person, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is amazing, and this, this really expands our understanding of worship. This means we do not have to go to one place to meet with God, but rather God has come to meet with us in any and every place. You can have a hard day at work and stop to listen to the Lord and enjoy the presence of the Lord. You can be home in the garden. You can be at the grocery store. You can be out for a walk. You can be in your car. You can be dropping the kids off at school. You can be going to take a chem final as a high school kid. And if you will stop and remind yourself of the presence of God in your life and ask God to be with you and to speak to you, he loves to hear and answer that prayer and he loves to be with you and he loves to speak with you because he wants to help you learn who he is and how to walk with him. And this is really amazing. This is so much better than coming to boss God around or to impress God or to make vows or to cut a deal with God. It's enjoying the presence of God and it's listening to God. And it's, it's really parental fatherly daughter or son relationship kind of concept. And so for these reasons, all of life is worship, and it's lived in the presence of God, who speaks to us about all of life and welcomes us to listen to him and to walk with him. And here's the good news. I'll close with this. As a result, every moment of every day is an opportunity to worship God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Every moment of every day is an opportunity to worship God by the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, how do I begin to understand and experience that? Solomon would say, listen, listen to the Lord. 
Firstly, I would encourage you through his word. Thank you for letting me teach you his word. And also it's getting time with God to pray and to listen, to see what the Holy Spirit might reveal to you about who he is and his instructions for your worship in every aspect of your life. Let me just tell you this. I'll close with this. I guess it just comes to mind. How wonderful is it that we have a God who actually wants to talk to us? Some of you, your parents don't talk to you. They don't say anything. They don't involve themselves. They don't give you any wise counsel. Some of you don't even know who your father is. Your father in heaven, he loves you. He sees you. He knows you. He's concerned for you. He's always happy to meet with you. And he wants to talk to you. And he wants you to listen so that he can make your life more blessed. I would just encourage you, get some time with them and listen.